But here is the question. Is Christmas pagan? And when Christians celebrate Christmas and use a Christmas tree and they bring out their gifts, are they actually like worshiping pagan deities and, ce and celebrating a pagan holiday? In fact, if you just type in your search engine, you know, is Christmas pagan or pagan Christian or, or pagan Christmas or something like that, anything along these lines, you're going to see something like this. There is a list of just page after page after page of documentaries and articles and special wow news reports and stuff about how pagan Christmas is. Then if you go to the images search, you'll see wonderful memes, cute little things like this. What if I told you Christmas was based on the pagan holiday Saturnalia and Easter Ishtar? And so we'll deal with Easter some other time, of course. But what we realize is there is, um, there is an attack on Christmas, although I'm not talking about the media here. What I mean is there's a large group of people who are very publicly saying that Christmas isn't Christian at all. And so I want to deal with some of these Christmas myths and deal with some of this stuff. Basically, here's some of the things we'll, we'll talk about. Is Christmas in, celebrated in the Bible? Is it in the Bible at all? Um, is December 25th a pagan day? Is it owned and operated by pagans? Um, are Christmas trees a pagan symbol? Is Santa really the pagan deity Odin? Yes, that's a legitimate thing we'll discuss. And is there anything wrong with celebrating Christmas? That's what it kind of comes down to in the end. Is there, is there anything wrong with celebrating Christmas or the way that we choose to do it? Um, so the focus here is the truth about Christmas. Personally, I'm willing to take any given holiday if I discovered something's legitimately wrong with it and chuck it. I don't mind that personally. Um, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but I'm interested in the truth about it. And this being a controversial issue, it's a little difficult to find the truth. Because it's easy on easy issues. But any controversy, when you're searching for information, there's just so many people on both sides trying to drag you their direction that it makes it a little difficult. Well, let's deal with the first one here. Is Christmas in the Bible? Um, no. Those of you who, <laughs> who have read your Bibles already know the question this is a little silly. Christmas is not celebrated in the scriptures. In fact, the only accounts of Christian activities we have after the resurrection for any length of time is the book of Acts. Just one source, the book of Acts. And that source doesn't account for Christmas one way or another. It doesn't discuss it. The issue just doesn't come up. It just doesn't come up at all. However, the event that Christmas celebrates is in the Bible. I mean, the, the actual event, not, not a commemoration of it, but the event itself. That is, of course, in the scripture. This is the word becoming flesh. We read about this in John 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And Christmas is about the incarnation or coming into human form that God became man, that he might live the perfect sinless life, bear our sin and guilt, die on the cross for our sins. And that is certainly in the scriptures. Now, is anything wrong in and of itself with celebrating the coming of Jesus? I, I don't think so. In fact, I think we have a biblical case to say that it's a good thing to celebrate. For instance, it was celebrated in the scriptures. They celebrated it. It was a great thing. The Magi show up from a distant land following the star. They show up to meet this newborn king. Maybe coming a little after his birth, not the day of, very likely. But still, they show up to celebrate the birth of this king, of Jesus, of the Messiah. The shepherds, it's announced to them that they might come and adore him as the, as the uh, song goes, come let us adore him. Angels announced it. I think that makes it kind of significant. <laughs> and Matthew, Luke, and John, three of the gospels have special focus on this moment, the incarnation, the, the birth of Christ. So is there anything wrong with celebrating Christ's coming? Well, no, it was celebrated at the event itself. It was celebrated. And, um, and so I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with celebrating the coming of Christ. So that leads us to the next question. How about the day itself, December 25th? Is there something wrong with celebrating Jesus on Christmas Day or on December 25th? We're told that this is the, not the birth of Jesus, but actually the birth of Mithras, that this is a pagan day. This is the common internet memes that are out there, that this is, in, in fact, there are many people who might be watching this video right now who think, of course, everyone knows that's Mithras's birthday. Everyone knows that. But I want to I want to look into that a little deep, more detailed because this same group of people will also say, "No, it's not Christmas. It's the celebration of Saturnalia." 
to which you might go, well, look, is it the birth of Mithras or is it the celebration of Saturnalia? They'll also say it was the birthday of Sol Invictus. These are the three most common ones that you'll come across if you're witnessing or encountering people. Even college professors will commonly quote this sort of thing. You'll see, <laughs> yes, this is real. They actually make these. Mithra is the reason for the season. Happy winter solstice, atheists of Florida. So there's a free, there's a free plug for atheistofflorida.org. If you'd like to go and learn some really accurate information, you could go check out their website. Um, actually, this, this sort of common uh, misconception actually was propagated most recently by a hit YouTube documentary called Zeitgeist. Has anybody here, you've heard of Zeitgeist? You may not have heard of it. In fact, it's funny how few have heard of it, but so many have heard the content repeated that came from Zeitgeist. Here's the, uh, the, the label for Zeitgeist the movie. It actually, it's a little bit more of an acid trip than if you were watching 2001 Space Odyssey. <laughs> it's, it's, it is really strange. I tried watching it. I watched a good portion of it. Certainly watched the religious portion of it. And after a while, I, I, just, I'm, I'm, I just was done. But, <clears throat> but it's a conspiracy theory movie. It's all about conspiracy theories. And um, it led to a huge movement, actually. Huge compared to the size of the film. Millions upon millions of people have watched it on YouTube. It's the, the single original Zeitgeist video has over 22 million views. And that's a long, drawn-out video. And then, in addition to that... Follow-up videos have been made with millions and millions of views, other offshoot videos, atheists making videos taking the info from Zeitgeist. Um, in fact, one of those atheists would be a guy named Bill Maher. You may be familiar with him. Bill Maher is a religious, uh, anti-religious comedian. He does a lot of political talk, but whenever he can, he tries to uh, get a pot shot in on religion. Catholicism in particular seems to be the one he despises the most. And he made a movie called Religious. In Religious, he repeated the same things that came out of Zeitgeist. Now, these do relate to Christmas, and I'll show you in just a second how. But I just want to show you that this is this has actually been very popularized. These attacks on Christmas, even if you haven't heard them, have been very popularized. They're on the search engines, they're in the memes, they're they're in the chat rooms, and um, they are very uh, known, <laughs> sadly. But so let's dig into them. Let's dig into them. In, in Bill's, Bill's movie, Bill Maher's movie, and in Zeitgeist, they go through a litany of, of gods and goddesses from back in the olden days. And then they declare that, for instance, Mithra was born of a virgin, was born on December 25th, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, was dead for three days, was resurrected, and Sunday was the day Mithra was worshipped. They'll also say this about Horus, similar things. Born on December 25th, born of a virgin, had a star in the east, that appeared, was adored by three kings, was teaching at 12, baptized, and had his ministry at the age of 30, and had 12 disciples. The list goes on. Dionysus, born of a virgin, born on December 25th, performed miracles, was called the king of kings, was called the Alpha and Omega, and then was resurrected. This, this list just goes on and on, name after name after name. Now, when you chase down the actual sources of where are the ancient documents that tell them these things about these, these deities, what you find is that Bill Maher is quoting Zeitgeist. Zeitgeist is quoting another book. That book's quoting another book. These are all modern books. And then that book has no ancient sources of any kind. It's just sort of a long string of one person quoting another who had no original sources. So it's difficult to do research on this because the documents don't exist. They can't be analyzed. But let me go through some details. Mithra. Mithra, it's said, was born of a virgin. This is not true. Mithra emerged fully grown out of a rock wearing a hat. Now, I suppose you could consider a rock, like a stone, a virgin. I, I suppose you could call it that, but this is obviously not what we mean by virgin birth. Um, Mithra was born on December 25th. Actually, there is no date given anywhere of Mithra's supposed birth. There's just no date given for it. So this just, someone pulled it out of their... Mithra, I don't know where they got it from. And then there are, supposedly Mithra had 12 disciples. Um, actually, he had one or two, depending on which sort of sect or, or you know, smaller group of Mithraists you belonged to. He had one or two disciples in particular. He was dead for three, or excuse me, performed miracles. Mithra is known for one great activity. Over and over again, the pictures of Mithra, the activities of Mithra are seen always doing the same thing. Mithra killed a bull. We're not sure why. Mithra killed a bull. He's known for slaying a bull. This is what Mithra is known for, not for 
performing specifically miracles, although that would be generic. I wouldn't be surprised if a deity character performed miracles, but... Mithra was dead for three days. No, Mithra never died. There's no record of Mithra dying. There's just no record. And if there's no record of Mithra dying, there's no source document for that, then it's difficult to have a resurrection, (laughs) which which just seems to have been fabricated. And then finally, uh, Sunday. Mithra was worshipped on Sunday. Um, Now, Christians gathering on the first day of the week, we know that this happened long before actually the Mithraic cult became popular. It didn't actually become popular until the second century AD. But we see Christians gathering on Sunday immediately after the resurrection of Christ because that was the Lord's day. And, then, and they would gather in the temple on the Sabbath. And the next day they would gather together as believers to, uh, to talk about the Lord and to worship and to sit under the teaching of the apostles um, who were obviously not being invited to teach in the temple <laughs> at the time. Um, so, yes. And it, it's, just, um, it's just one thing after another. Now, if you move on to the next one, I'm giving you a quick rundown because I don't I have a lot more to discuss. I don't want to bog down with this. But man, you hear this stuff and it just it you go, what? There's a bunch of these weird deities I never heard of that all had the same story as Jesus? Like that doesn't compute. Well, you're right. It doesn't compute, actually. Horus. Horus is supposedly born on December 25th. Well, depending on which calendar you're looking at, he was born either on during August 24th through 28th, or he was born on July 15th. So in July or August. And those, those dates is the ones given for Horus's actual birth. Not on December 25th. Uh, now keep in mind, the Bible does not tell us when Jesus was born. We don't know. Okay. I don't care if it was the 25th. Um, I'll, I'll get into some reasons why they may have selected that date. But even if there was a deity that was born on the 25th, it's irrelevant to Jesus's story because it doesn't involve the date. It involves the event of his birth, not the date. He was born supposedly of a virgin. Was Horus born of a virgin? No. In fact, there's a story a little too inappropriate for me to discuss, but I'll give you a, a, a highlights of it. Um, his father was Osiris. His mother was Isis. Osiris had been killed and ripped to pieces. His mother, Isis, used her magic to piece him back together, reanimated his body in order to copulate, and then she produced a child. This is not a virgin birth. No, not by a long shot. There's other more disgusting versions of that story, but supposedly Horus, there was a a star in the east. There's just no source given for this. Uh, We don't know where this story came from, although I suspect it came from the same same place as some other other things. (laughs) It was adored by three kings. Supposedly Horus was adored by three different kings. Now this is interesting because the scripture does not say that Jesus was adored by three kings. No, there were three magi, or the word means wise men. They were probably well-educated counselors to a king. They showed up from the east. They worshipped Jesus. And we don't know how many there were. We know there were three gifts. And we don't know if there were three of them. And maybe later traditions gave the names and all that. And you know, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. But the scripture doesn't indicate this. So, But e- anyway, um, there's just no source on this either. That Horus was, was you know, greeted by three kings. This just seems to be invented. Horus was supposedly a teacher at the age of 12. No, there's no source that says that. And may I remind us, Jesus wasn't a teacher at the age of 12 either. He was asking questions. We have a short little account of how he went to the temple and asked lots of questions and how they were marveled at how wise he was. But we don't see him teaching at that age, which would be fine if he was, but that's just not what the account says. Finally, he was uh, baptized and started his ministry at the age of 30. No, there's nothing like baptism in the story of Horus. Yet this is popular media and people repeat this over and over again. Like it's just solid fact. The closest thing to baptism, Horus is associated with another deity who's the deity of embalming. Not exactly baptism. Very Egyptian though, embalming. (laughs) Well, the last one here is 12 disciples. Horus had 12 disciples. Nope. Horus had four, quote, followers of Horus. That's what he had. He had, again, uh, in addition to that, 16 blacksmiths. Now, it's true that 16 minus 4 equals 12. But this is not common core curriculum here. We're talking about how many disciples did he have. And he either, by either count, he either had 4, 16, or 20. uh, But he didn't have 12. Not that it would be all that significant if he happened to have 12 uh, followers. But the point is, these are supposed to be the, the best examples they've got. Yeah. Finally, Dionysus. Dionysus, it said, was born of a virgin. 
Actually, Dionysus is a result, depending on the story you follow, of either a, uh, of an affair between Zeus and a princess, a human princess, or between Zeus and his daughter, Persephone. So it's one of the two. Is That's the result. That's how Dionysus was born. Supposedly, Dionysus was born on December 25th. There's actually no reference to a December 25th birth for Dionysus at all. There's just, there's no source on that. Supposedly, he performed miracles. And my thought here is, okay, sure. Who cares? You have a deity. You would expect to hear stories about great deeds that this deity did. However, all that Dionysus did was basically give people wine. Dionysus is the god of wine. So he gave out lots of alcohol. Now they say, ah, Dionysus turned water into wine. So it's just like Jesus. However, in the many stories of Dionysus producing wine for people, he never once turns water into into wine, which would not be terribly significant if he did, but he didn't. And it's notable that these internet attacks come uh, at the expense of just truth. Supposedly, he is the king of kings. Um, no, <laughs> there's two problems with this. One is that Dionysus is not that type of god. That would be like the Zeus or, you know, the, the king of the god sort of type character, um, way up there in the pantheon. Dionysus is the god of wine, right? Party, revelry, this sort of thing. There's no, there wouldn't be the appropriate title for, for Dionysus anyways, but also there's no source. It's, Dionysus is never called this. And finally, uh, or second to last, Alpha and Omega, there's no source on that either. And Dionysus was resurrected. There was a resurrection. There's actually a really strange account of Dionysus, and you could call this a resurrection. This will show you how sometimes they take these, these comparisons to Jesus that are really far off, like insultingly far off, and then they ignore all the details and just go, yeah, see, it's like the same. So Dionysus, there's a strange account how he was ripped apart, because Hera was, was mad about Dionysus, was ripped apart by the Titans, and how his heart was then taken and put inside, turned, and the heart, the only thing that was left, was taken, created into like a seed, and then that was put inside of a new mother, so then he had a second birth. Not exactly the death, three days later, resurrection account of Jesus that we're looking at here. It's just very far off. It's just weird kind of mythical stuff that you expect. In fact, the earliest accounts of this, 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 this death and then the heart and all this weird stuff, actually post-date Christianity. And this is the case. A lot of times the similarities between these other religions and Christianity, Christianity had that, that quality before. And they actually post-date. And if there's any borrowing, it, it appears as though it was the popularity of Christianity that was then being borrowed from by these other religious groups. Christianity actually is more of the stalwart, we will not change, we will not compromise, we will not stop or, or add or take away type of group. So there's a lot of Christmas myths out there. Now, why do I share all that with you? That wasn't so much about the December 25th date as to, to just help all of us realize because this is a controversial issue and the whole if it bleeds, it leads kind of mentality that people have in, in news and in, in media, it's a lot easier to spread a lie that's inflammatory than it is to give people the boring truth. And that's what happens. You know, they say a lie is halfway around the world when the truth is just getting out of bed. <laughs> that seems to be the way it is. So let's deal with this issue of December 25th. Is... December 25th, pagan, as many people suggest. Is it the Roman celebration of Saturnalia? Okay, it's not the birth of Mithras, it seems. Or at least there is no solid justification to suppose that it is. Um, I wouldn't care if it was. It's just a day. But is it the Roman celebration of Saturnalia? Here's a meme for you. Happy Saturnalia. That's what you're really celebrating anyway, you Bible-thumping moron. As the world spits upon us for being such utter fools. And we go, what are you talking about? All right. <clears throat> the Roman celebration of Saturnalia was actually December 17th through the 23rd. So if we were actually putting Christmas on Saturnalia, why did we pick two days after the festival ended? The 17th was the day. This was the day of Saturnalia. Slowly over time, the Romans extended that celebration because they enjoyed it. So they made it longer and longer. Eventually, it got to be a week long at the longest. And then it ended on the 23rd. They did do something 
very similar to what people sometimes rarely do nowadays on Christmas. That is, they would go house to house or at least walking down the street while singing. Naked. <laughs> Not really a custom that we've entirely adopted, I don't think. Um, I don't think that necessarily singing in public, I mean, if you go to a uh, modern day um, rally, you'll, you'll see singing. They'll be singing. They sing rally songs. If you go to a, a picketing, say in, in Israel, we went to Israel and we were there for uh, um, some of the settlers were, were doing a protest. And it was actually really neat. I mean, there was whole families gathered together and Jewish settlers were doing a protest. They were, and they were singing. They were just singing songs. And it was really pleasant, actually. It was very peaceful um, and very nice. But I would not look at them singing and say, ha, Saturnalia. Singing in public is obviously pagan. I mean, there's obviously nothing wrong with that. But there's more that they did. Saturnalia also involved human sacrifice. It involved the reversal of roles where they would have freedom for the slaves and the owners would serve them. Although it was more, actually, it almost seems to me as I read about it, like it was mocking to the slaves. So the slaves would still have to cook the food, but then the owners would serve them. But the owners would, would mock and sometimes ridicule the slaves. And supposedly, some, some accounts say, oh, they had freedom to do whatever they wanted. But you got to realize that as soon as this feast is over, you're going to be paying for whatever it was you did during the feast. And so I doubt they really had quite that much freedom. But it was meant to be this fun and goofy thing, a reversal of roles. This is really nothing like Christmas. Um, modern American Christmas has kept one of these, which is drunkenness. And then, of course... Rape and sexual immorality were rampant. It was considered a time of, of breaking the rules, of breaking like a riotous type of behavior. Now, this doesn't really look very much like Christmas, does it? Not so much. It's on the wrong day. It is around that same solstice time, which is when the, uh, the sun has, we've had the shortest days, and now we're about to have the longer days. The 25th is right when we start to have those longer days. But other than that, not so much. It's on the wrong day. If they were going to replace this, they would have put it on the 17th, um, which I wouldn't care if they did, but that doesn't seem to have been the goal. The last one that you hear a little bit less common, but it seems to be at least a little bit more plausible, is the idea that the Roman celebration Natalis Sol Invictus, or uh, the, un the birth of the unconquerable sun. Natalis, like, like, like nativity, birth, right? The sun, Invictus, like unconquerable. And that was on December 25th. Here's a, uh, an, uh, a coin that has a, um, an image of this, this, uh, this thing. The birth of the unconquerable son. I say this thing because we're not really sure exactly what this was. We don't know that much about Sol Invictus. Some people guess about it, but what we really know is pretty slim. We aren't really sure exactly what it was. The first reference to it is very vague, and it is in a 4th century document. And the irony is... It's in the 4th century document that gives us a reference to Jesus' birth being on December 25th. So here we have the earliest account of this Sol Invictus on the 25th being at the same as the earliest account of them saying Jesus was on the 25th. So there's really no way to tell what predates what, what borrows from what, or if they even have any competition between the two. It's just, there's not a lot to know here. Well... Those are the three things. A birth of Mithras, birth of you name it, God. <laughs> um, Natalis Sol Invictus, this event here, this birth of the unconquerable sun, or really it, it seems to be that it's about the fact that the sun is now longer days. So the sun was getting smaller and colder, and then boom, now it's stronger and stronger. And so the birth of the unconquerable sun, which wouldn't be so much a birth as it would be a uh, simply a cyclical change. Now, is that somehow related? It's possible. Um, let's talk about that. Why, why did the early church celebrate December 25th, that as being the day? In the very earliest accounts we have of them discussing when Jesus might have been born, December 25th isn't on the table. There's like three or four dates given in one old document, and they give three or four ideas, but they don't, none of them are in December. That day's not given. So the question is, why did they do it? Well, we don't, let me just say this, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Anybody, I think, who says, ah, we know for sure. It's like, well, then good. Give us the proof. Give us the documentation. Don't just say you know. Um, and I'm happy to, to read into it. I'm just curious to know. But here's one thought, and this is the more modern scholarly opinion about it, is that it was nine months from Passover. Let me explain. They believe, some people, that, um, and it's a Jewish tradition, that a prophet would die on the day that they were born. 
So Jesus having died on Passover, they've thought March 25th, then he would have been, uh, he would have been nine months previous. Excuse me, uh, they, died, they died on the day where they were conceived, not born. They were, so they first had life conception. Then nine months uh, after that, March 25th brings you to December 25th. So the thought was, okay, nine months, boom, boom, there you go. That's the birth of Christ. That was the, that was the concept. There is some real support for this. Another thought is it could have been just after the winter solstice and it may have been used to be symbolic. Not because it was a pagan thing they were replacing. Perhaps it was simply, hey, there is the sun coming up. It's symbolic, you know, of the fact that Christ rose from the dead and, he, you know, he brings us into new life and all this wonderful stuff. That I think that is wonderful symbolism. I think it's nice to be able to tell your kids, oh, the long days will get longer, things will get better, Jesus will return. You know, I think that's a nice uh, thing you can add to Christmas there. And also, here's a thought. What if it was to repurpose pagan days? Personally, I don't have a problem with this. I don't personally have a problem with repurposing pagan days. Imagine if you have your children who love celebrating, you name it, you know, there's festivities and activities, but they're associated with something very ungodly. So you don't want to take away their joy, but you want to replace it with something godly that's Christ-centered. And I wouldn't see a problem with that, with saying, hey, we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ. Why not put it on during this season when there's these, some other things going on? There isn't a ton of support for this, I don't think. But if they had done this, I wouldn't care, personally. And I don't think we should be bothered by that, because let's face it, more people celebrate Christmas today um, with Christ at the focus than ever celebrated that day for anything else in all of history. <laughs> so, so we won. I mean, like, like it's, that's what it is now. It's, you, you, know, any, you know, sorry, Saturnalia. People just look at your thing and go, what is Saturnalia? What is that? For the most part, yeah. Um, it's also possible, and this has to do with uh, the star charts and fun stuff like that. You guys could check out on your own. Look at the Bethlehem Star video. You could search it up on YouTube. Really interesting views on that. Um, the Magi may have arrived on that day. On that day. Now, I give you several options because I want you to realize something. We don't know. That's why. We don't know. And someone, oh, it's Sol Invictus. And da, da, da. Oh, yeah, we have a vague reference to Sol Invictus in the same document that already gives December 25th as a recognized date for the birth of Christ. So we don't have a pre-established something else that's being replaced. It just doesn't seem to be the case. But when you hear this stuff, you just believe it. It's almost like if it's bad about Christianity, it must be true. It's like that's how the world responds. They're critical except of the criticisms. They think skeptically except of their skepticisms. And they just embrace unflinchingly and without any hesitation anything that's anti-Christian without giving it some serious thought. So all that being given, let's answer the question. Is there anything inherently pagan about December 25th? No, there's nothing inherently pagan about any day. Days are just what they are. They're what you make of them. A day is what you make of it. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is celebrating pagan gods on Christmas. Yeah, there's some wahoos out somewhere in the middle of Florida or something, I don't know, somewhere where they're like literally getting together to do pagan rituals on this day just because they hate Christianity. Like, but they're not really pagans. They're just trying to attack Christianity and find they can, I'm sure that they're really having an impact in the world. But, um, but let's look at what scripture says about this. Romans 14. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. The, the Bible seems to take a perspective of, oh, you want to celebrate Christmas? Okay, go ahead. Oh, you want to celebrate it on January? Okay, well, go ahead. Oh, you don't want to celebrate it? Okay, go ahead. Whatever you're doing, do it unto the Lord. This is a beautiful principle in Christian life, that on non-essential issues, we just don't worry about it. We just don't make a big thing about it. And this is one of those issues. Now, is it, let's back up a little bit. Forget the day. Is it biblically acceptable to celebrate a holiday at all? Or are all holidays somehow evil, as maybe Jehovah's Witnesses might have you believe? The Old Testament actually gave several holidays for the Jews to celebrate. It told them to celebrate. We have feast days, holy days, high holy days, all these wonderful things that God gave them many times. 
But then that leads us to another question. Is it okay to celebrate a new holiday that wasn't specifically prescribed in the Old Testament? Well, I think we have a two answers to that. One is the verse we already read. You know, celebrate a day, celebrate a day. Don't, don't. The other is the idea that Jesus did this. It appears that Jesus celebrated Hanukkah, the festival of lights, when he, in John chapter 10, heads out over to this feast of dedication. And so the Jews were celebrating these holidays. Now, Jesus had a perfect opportunity, as we read John chapter 10, to say, oh, this is a bad holiday. You're celebrating a holiday that I didn't prescribe. But no, he just shows up and he seems to be part of it, just like he's part of a lot of other feast days. In John, he just goes kind of, to Jerusalem feast day after feast day, holiday after holiday, keeps showing up. And there he is showing up at that particular one. So I think we have really good biblical ground to say it's fine. So you want to celebrate a holiday, go ahead. It's almost silly that I have to make a case for it, but, but there it is. <laughs> now, let's move on to Christmas trees. Christmas trees are pagan. Clearly, they are pagan in every way. I don't even need to explain. No, let's get into the details, okay? Um, the Roman cult of Asherah. This is what you will discover if you search online. I will search, you search Asherah, a Roman cult of Asherah, it will tell you over and over and over again, countless websites, countless articles, countless haha gotcha type, you know, websites that will say that the Roman cult of Asherah, they would put a tree in their home and they would decorate it as part of their pagan practices. Supposedly. Because when you search for an actual historical source to support these claims, you find nothing. All you find is tons of websites with claims that, oh, we all know that Cult of Asherah, they, they had trees and da-da-da. But when you scroll down to find their actual source notes, these are the types of sites that don't have notes, <laughs> don't have any footnotes, don't have any references. Now, if it's out there that this Roman Cult of Asherah somehow worshipped trees and put them in the home and had some pagan practices, there doesn't seem to be a lot of scholarly sources. I search for scholarly journal articles. I search for any, any, I mean, all over. I spent so much time looking for just anything to support this. Couldn't find a, a single one. I think that uh, we're safe to dismiss it unless somebody shows us otherwise. Because you would have to show us that they did this and then demonstrate how that somehow affected all of Christendom <laughs> into having trees as well. Um, some say it's connected to the Asherah poles of the Old Testament. But then they're going to have to explain how it was that those Asherah poles, which were nothing like Christmas trees, turned into Christmas trees, moved over to a specific day of the, of the year that has nothing to do with Asherah, and then, of course, migrated up into Germany somehow out of Iran <laughs> and wasn't in Iran anymore. It just doesn't make any sense. The Asherah poles were gone by the time of Jesus anyway. So, so those, of, those who've actually looked into that, you should let it go. <laughs> so let's, let's move on. Legend has it, now this is, I'll say legend because it's oral tradition, okay? Legend has it that Luther, as in Martin Luther, in 1536, he was walking in the forest and he looked up and he saw through the trees these brilliant stars shining through the trees and it made him think about how, how Christ left heaven to come and dwell amongst us here on earth. So that he then came home and he cut one of these trees down and he set it in the house and he decided to put lights on it to tell his children, hey, this, is, this, is, this represents how Christ came down. Now, that, that's legend, yes. But it is the most solid source we have on why people do Christmas trees. And it actually explains why for a very long time, for about oh, almost 300 years, Christmas trees were a predominantly German practice that were not done throughout the rest of the world. They were just done in Germany. And that's, of course, that's where uh, Luther lived. And if you ask them where they got the Christmas tree idea, they would have pointed to Luther. Actually, they wouldn't have said, well, you know, there were these pagans in Iran and we followed their practices and we don't know why. I, I don't think so. Now, in the 1800s, in the mid-1800s, the British royal family popularized trees even more. Having a German in the family, Prince Albert, they had him uh, import uh, several spruce firs from his native, native country in Germany. And what he did was he put them inside of the royal house. Now, that wasn't that rare for him to do that. What happened in the mid-1800s, though, was periodicals took drawings, art drawings, of the royal family in front of their Christmas tree and published them throughout Britain. And the royal family then, being the superstars that they were, because they were the Justin Biebers of the world at the time, they were followed by the populace. 
And year after year, for several years in the 1840s and 50s, they just continue to publish pictures and, and, and descriptions of the Christmas tree and the, and the ornaments and gifts under the tree and all that stuff. And what was a German habit became a whole, like, a whole British Empire habit, including very popularized in America. It was no longer just the German immigrants, but it was all sorts of people were doing it. So for about the past 160 years, it's been a worldwide phenomenon, which we can trace being popularized to this particular event being published and put in the magazines. So that would be the source. In other words, the source is not uh, some sort of deep pagan activity, uh, or so it doesn't seem to be. Um, now, is there anything pagan about trees in particular? Because like, do we read about that like on day four, how God called up the pagan gods to make the trees? On day four, he's like, hey, pagans, you get the trees. Okay, so there's nothing inherently pagan about trees. There's nothing inherently wrong with trees. Um, is there anything pagan about putting a tree in your house? Like, does that, like when it crosses over the threshold, it becomes paganized. No, I, I, this seems silly to think this. Now, if someone doesn't like trees, that's fine. Don't put it in your house. But don't demonize for no reason the thing that's happening. Is there anything pagan about decorating a tree? It's like it's fine, but once you put tinsel on it, Satan. Satan happens. Just poof. No. I, I, I think that that seems ludicrous. Okay? And, um, and at this point, we have to stop and go, what is our real problem here? What is it that we're so against? What was actually pagan? If this cult of Asherah was actually doing that practice, then what was pagan was their purpose. For instance, if we're going to say that because um, a pagan at one point in the past in some undetermined location in some broad Roman Empire with no source documents, they worshipped trees and put them in the house and it was part of some cult. And therefore, nobody can use trees anymore, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. And they can't bring them in the home and decorate them. Then we have to say that we're not allowed to sing in church. Because, you know, it's a common pagan practice to get together and sing. So singing must be pagan. So therefore, we are really worshiping Satan when you're in church singing. Because singing is pagan. This is like the people who said you can't use drums in church. Because drums, like, are owned by the devil, basically. <laughs> it's like, well, well, drums were used in bad rock bands, and therefore they're, they're inherently evil forever. And I'll be like, what about Psalm 150? Tells me to bang the clashing cymbals together unto the Lord. Well, that doesn't count. <laughs> okay. All right there. You just start your own religion of things people can't do. <laughs> now, so what was their purpose? Their purpose was pagan. That's What made it pagan was they made it pagan. You know, they made it worship of a false thing. What is your purpose with a Christmas tree? Well, I'll, I'll speak for myself. I think it's fun. It's not that deep. I just think it's fun. I think it smells nice. I like the way it smells. I really do. I think it looks good. I take pictures of it. Stand in front of it. Stand there with my wife and go, look, there's our tree. And I'm just happy about it, you know? And th these are my reasons. And then finally, of course, it's symbolic if you make it symbolic. Now, it's going to smell nice either way. But whether or not you make it symbolic, that's you. I, I certainly wouldn't, you know, want to be able to make the tree symbolic for, for kids and give them descriptions. And you could use any host of symbolism. I'm not going to pretend the symbolism I give it is, like, inherent to trees and God made it that way. I just, I'm giving it symbolism to make it an object lesson. That's on purpose. But that, I think, is absolutely fine. So, is Christmas pagan? No. No, it's not pagan. <laughs> um, Christmas is not threatened by ancient paganism. The day is not owned by pagan-like control. The, uh, the things we celebrate are not pagan. The ways we're celebrating are not inherently evil or somehow pagan or something like that. No. However, Christmas is threatened. It's not by ancient paganism. It is by modern secularism. There is a threat to Christmas. It's not so much a conspiracy as it is just sort of the, the tide of the times. Secularism is defined as indifference to or rejection or exclusion of religion and religious considerations. 
In fact, we've gone from indifference, moving closer and closer to rejection and then exclusion of religious things where, okay, happy holidays, you can't say Merry Christmas. And I don't like making that the biggest deal in the world, but it's a noticeable thing. You know, it's like you could, you could, you could, you could, it's a barometer. You're like, wow, okay, I noticed this. Your guys are like embarrassed to say Merry Christmas. Like, that's interesting. You probably wouldn't be embarrassed to say Happy Hanukkah or embarrassed to say something else, but you're embarrassed to say that's kind of odd. So, enter Santa Claus. So, isn't this? This is a real picture of Jesus and the, and the real Santa Claus. The real Jesus and the real Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm told that's not Santa. But, well, it, it is the real Jesus. No. No, uh, yeah. Jesus probably would not look like so much of a gringo. <laughs> but enter Santa Claus. Let's talk about this guy because this is just interesting to know. Santa Claus, um, well, he's based on several characters. One of them is Saint Nicholas. He was an actual guy. Another is Father Christmas. Father Christmas is a mythical figure. And another is Santa Claus or Santa Claus, uh, which I know is just another language there we're kind of mixing. But Santa Claus, what we commonly call Santa Claus, is sort of a mixture of these two characters, of this uh, Saint Nicholas and Father Christmas sort of blended together in a constantly changing character, Santa Claus, who changes all the time. He's different all the time. When I was a kid, Santa came down your chimney. Now he like teleports things and does stuff. It's like he's getting more high tech all the time, this guy. But let's talk about the original legitimate character, St. Nicholas. He was the Bishop of Myra in the 300s AD. I say probably because there's not a whole lot of actual historical evidence about him. There's a little bit. Then there's a bunch of myths that are surrounding him. Many legends are about this guy, St. Nicholas. I'll tell you one of them right now. Supposedly, Nicholas was born to a wealthy family in Petaralicia. His parents died and he inherited a considerable sum of money, but he kept none of it. He gave it all away. In the most famous story about his life, he threw bags of gold through the windows of three girls about to be forced into the lives of prostitutes. At least, that's the most common version of the story. There are other versions of the story, including a really grim one, where the three girls are beheaded by an innkeeper and pickled in a tub of brine until Nicholas resurrects them. And so I share that with you so you realize the breadth of the stories from, from what seems plausible to what seems really implausible, where you're like, yeah, probably not the way it happened. Um, the shoes are in this particular picture because he's known to have dropped, at least in some of the stories, to put money in their shoes. They put their shoes by the window and he put money in them. And so uh, maybe there's some connection with hanging stockings. Um, I like hanging stockings because it's a perfect uh, receptacle for large amounts of candy. Um, some chunks of coal, which wouldn't bother me really. Coal's useful. <laughs> we gave the whole world coal. We solved some power issues. So St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra in 300s, there's a lot of legends about him. In the Dutch, uh, St. Nicholas would have been abbreviated Sinterklaas. Or, so you have Santa Claus. It starts to move over from language to language. This is uh, the more ancient pictures of St. Nicholas. You're like, wait a minute, that doesn't look like Santa Claus. <laughs> wait a minute, he's like skinny, and he's balding, and he's got that weird, like, like Middle Ages, I'm a holy guy look going on, you know, it's just kind of strange. So that's St. Nicholas, that's not a whole lot we know about the guy. Seemed like he was a good guy, and yes, there's a story about him supposedly being a defender of the faith, and he was at the Council of... Uh, um, uh, oh my gosh, how do I forget this count? Uh, Nicaea. And he was there, supposedly he traveled long distance to get there just to punch Arius right in the face, who was a, um, who was a heretic at the council. The other bishops, according to this story, they did not like the fact that he was so improper, so they were going to dismiss him from being a bishop until Jesus and Mary appeared next to him. And then they said, oh, okay, we'll keep you. So this is, this seems to be obviously legendary. Um, um, so was there's actually in the in the roles of bishops that showed up at Nicaea, there's no record of him in particular. He could have been there, but there's no reason to believe necessarily that he was. I'm sure he did lots of things. He probably wouldn't have been in this position unless he'd done some good stuff. But but he was so popular, super popular, and there tended to be a lot of legends coming up around him. Now, modern day Santa Claus is a little different. There's a lot of sources for modern day Santa Claus. There's Dutch sources, American, Norse, German, and they're all sort of bleh, put together 
almost like one person started telling a story and then someone else took it over and someone else, <laughs> it's, it's not one solid thing. Martin Luther, actually in his time, uh, while he is credited for starting Christmas trees, at least by some, he is not credited for helping Santa along. He really didn't like Santa Claus. He felt as though this St. Nicholas obsession was taking attention away from Jesus. And so he said he wanted to make Christmas all about Christ Kindle, which means the Christ child, which people forgot about and turned into, from Christ child, Chris Kringle. And gave it as another name for Santa Claus. So Chris Kringle is literally a name that exists for Santa because people forgot about Jesus. <laughs> it's just so ironic. But yeah, that's that's actually what it is. Uh, the modern day Santa Claus. Well, in the early 1800s, he has gone through, through many different, uh, different, you know, split out in different cultures. Uh, the St. Nicholas story and different legends arising, creating different versions, mixing with other deity, weird characters and mythological things. But in the early 1800s, he was reinvented as an elf. And you guys know the poem, is was the night before Christmas. And all through the house. Well, if you read the whole poem, which was quite long, he's identified as a jolly old elf. Which is just interesting. Now, now maybe, just my personal thought, maybe this is what gave rise to him having elf workers. That as he morphed back into being a normal guy, yet they kept the elves, but they were his, his, his helpers. His workers, perhaps. But then... You went from this no longer like a, like a like a saint type character to just like a jolly red cheek looks like he drinks too much, you know, and gives out candy and smokes a pipe, you know, he's just like jolly merrymaker and gives out toys and stuff. Um, to now, Coca Cola happened. Coca Cola did a whole advertising campaign, and they still do it all the time. They never stopped where they use Santa Claus to advertise. Now, Coke's colors, of course, are red and white, and so Santa's colors are red and white. It's just interesting that they just started doing advertisement after advertisement with Santa Claus. It was very successful for them. Obviously, Coke is huge. They're, I think that they're even bigger than Snickers is what I heard, but I don't know why. <laughs> so let's take all this in. Is Santa really St. Nicholas? Because some people, as Christians, they defend Santa Claus. And I'm not saying there's no way to defend, but, but not this way. You can't defend Santa Claus by saying he's actually Saint Nick because is Saint Nicholas still alive and roaming the earth? No, of course not. Is Saint Nicholas traveling to my house every year and bringing gifts to my children? No, no, certainly not. The, the modern day Santa Claus that is represented by the guys dressed up in the malls and all this sort of thing is a mythical person who is a mixture of several people and, and non-people, <laughs> including Saint Nicholas. Now, you can fashion your own version of Santa for your children, as many parents do. But the modern, popular culture Santa Claus is very little to do with Saint Nick, the actual person. Um, now, I'm not here trying to uh, make a case for um, uh, hating on the idea of Santa Claus. I think that parents have some liberty to do things how they, how they choose. And they're accountable for that, of course, not me. So, But... But we shouldn't kid ourselves and become sort of sloppy in our thinking and act as though you could just say anything you want as long as you call him saint something. <laughs> no, it's Christianized. And so I, I know that, um, that this is a touchy subject because as I discuss things like this with people, they get upset because they don't hear me saying, let's be rational about the Santa Claus thing. They hear me saying, I hate your childhood. <laughs> like, you know, that's what they hear. That's what they feel is coming out of my mouth. And I'm just, I'm just saying like, like if you came from another culture and you wandered into someone's home on Christmas and just saw Santa Claus everywhere and Christ was nowhere to be seen, you would be like, hmm, what are you, what are you celebrating? What are you celebrating? And that, that seems to be where secularism comes in, where we just are indifferent to Christ. You sort of exclude. Maybe there's a footnote. Oh, yeah. Don't forget it's about Jesus. All right. Mission accomplished. Let's go on with our secular holiday. So what is the ultimate purpose of Christmas? Well, it is to celebrate Christ. Peace in general is not the point of the holiday. Goodwill in general is not the point of the holiday. Rather, peace and goodwill through Christ is the point of the holiday. That Jesus is the avenue by which we are saved. Let's look at the first Christmas. Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. 
After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived of her in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, the incarnation. Then Joseph being aroused from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. So I think that we highlight verse 21 here and we say, look, You shall call his name Jesus. That's Yeshua in the Hebrew. And that means God is salvation. And he saved us. Jesus saved us from what? Sin. In a very real sense, sin is the reason for the season. My sin that separates me from God, where I have done wickedly against him, and yet he sent his son to bear my sins, to grow into a perfect man, and go to the cross and die for every wicked thing I've done, That's the reason for the season. We celebrate Christ. And he's not just the reason for the season. He's the center of creation. I'd like to share with you a quick example of this. In Genesis 3.15, we have the first prophecy of Christ. The first time he is mentioned in the Bible. And there it is in the very beginning, Genesis 3. I will put enmity or despising hatred between you and the woman. That would be Satan and the woman. Between your seed and her seed, he, specific he, there's a specific son of Eve that will come. He will bruise your head, which would be a a killing blow, and you shall bruise his heel, which would be an injury, but not a killing blow. And so Christ is pictured right there. In fact, if you go to the first passage of the Bible that people stop reading, Genesis 5, that's the first genealogy of the Bible. You know, they say they, I started reading the Bible and I got to Genesis 5 and then I stopped because it had a lot of names. Well, let's look at those names for a second. Adam gave birth to to Seth. Well, he had Seth. It was actually Eve who gave birth. I want to give her credit. And then Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, and you've got Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. These names actually translated mean, well, Adam means man. Most people are familiar with that. Seth, these are in order. Seth means appointed. Enosh, it means mortal. Kenan means sorrow. Mahalalel means the blessed God. In fact, the E-L there represents God. Uh, Jared shall come down. That's what his name means. Enoch means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. He died the same year of the flood and was the oldest man recorded in the scriptures. Lamech, the despairing. That's a lousy name for your kid. Don't name him Lamech. Parents, look up the meaning of a name just before you, you know, because you never know. And Noah means rest or comfort. Now, if you take these names and you put them together, and you, um, you, I'll, I'll put them in a sentence form here, but they're the exact same names, and I'll put in parentheses a couple words I'm adding for the sake of translation, right? Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. I mean, these are the, just the names in Genesis 5. Like, this, is, this has been the whole point all along. There's been the coming of Christ. This is it. I love the incarnation. I love Christmas. I love what it's about. I mean, it's the, the Christmas trees and the lights are fun, but that's all the fluff, man. I love Christ coming for us to save us from ourselves, from our sins, to give us the despairing, to give us rest. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It's all through the scripture. You can go on to the other, the other uh, places in the Bible, um, but you're just going to find throughout the scripture, Jesus, 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 Jesus. One of the most amazing things about the Bible is this integrated message about Christ from books that are 3,400 years old to books that are 2,000 years old. I mean, just throughout, authors that didn't know each other, all teaching and preaching about the same ultimate message, the coming of Christ. And so it is, in a sense, the most wonderful time of the year, like the scripture says. But, It is not the most important Christian holiday. There is a Christian holiday that is vastly more important and on my scale is much more exciting than Christmas and that would be Easter. 
because the death and resurrection of Christ is the center of that moment of our redemption. And so that's the most exciting one to me. In his birth, he took on our flesh, but in his death and resurrection, he actually accomplished our salvation. And so um, here's the question. Is your Christmas a secular Christmas or a Christ-focused Christmas? Whether you use trees or lights or not, it doesn't even matter. Whether it's on December 25th or you decide to celebrate it on June 3rd just to be funny. The point is that you're celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the symbols that matter. It's what they represent. It's not the tree. It's not the lights. It's not those things. It's what they represent. So my encouragement would be this. Freely and happily enjoy your symbols. Whichever ones you happen to enjoy. But make the focus of your celebration Jesus Christ. And by that, I think it's great to do some research. Google some ideas on how to make Christ the center of Christmas with your family, especially your children. You know, maybe come up with some of your own clever ideas on what you can do. Maybe about explaining how you can make a tree symbolic. How you can make the, maybe the lights on the tree become symbolic. Or maybe the presence under the tree become symbolic. I don't know. Maybe the excuse you have for sleeping in on Christmas Day becomes symbolic of something. You know? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. But, but I think that we want to use it for Christ with our, with our families. But also, you know, your kids, your grandkids, but also we want to share Christ. And Christmas presents us with a super good opportunity for this. I walk around and I hear worship songs just in Ralph's. And I'm like, I mean, I could just turn to the person and be like, yeah, you hear that song? You know what that song's about? And it's just a great point of contact for conversation with them about the Lord. I could say, hey, do you, are you, oh, you're those Christmas presents? You, you celebrate Christmas? Right on. That's awesome. How many kids do you have? Oh, so do you celebrate Jesus? specifically so you believe in Jesus wow and you could just you could engage so so much more easily because let's face it in America it's hard to engage with people in conversation about God they like freak out on you it's like you're asking them for money (laughs) and so it's a great avenue to enjoy those conversations but I but I want to mention this last thing there is something worse than a secular Christmas and that would be a secular life There are too many people that have a nod to Christ, but their life is not for Christ. They acknowledge Jesus on Christmas and on Easter to make sure that their holidays are in order, but their lives don't have Jesus as the Lord of their life. And that would be the worst thing. I'd rather you forget Christmas, but remember Jesus as Lord of your daily life than correctly celebrate one day, but miss 364 other ones. So... So let's use Christmas. Let's focus on it. But it shouldn't be our major battleground. I don't think as Christians we need to um, uh, necessarily stomp our feet too much about somebody not saying Merry Christmas. I like to say Merry Christmas to people, but I don't have to insist that they say it back to me or I'm going to get them or I don't know, what am I going to do? I'm like, never going to shop here again. You didn't say it. I think that that might not be the best witness. Because why should we expect everybody else to say that? Now, it's a little different if a company is telling its, its, its workers they're not allowed to say Merry Christmas. That's different. They're forcing others to not be able to. But if someone simply chooses to say it or not, either way, oh, I noticed you didn't say Merry Christmas. Is that because you don't believe in Jesus? <laughs> Just ask him. <laughs> why not use it as an opportunity to witness to them instead of making it all about that? Um, we can be about something a little bit bigger picture, which is people actually knowing Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask for um, wisdom this, uh, this year as we interact with the world, and we hope to, we pray for opportunities to interact with the world about Jesus, to use Christmas as an opportunity to talk to them about maybe some of these issues, um, where Christmas trees come from and all that sort of stuff. They're fun things to talk about, who's Santa Claus, who is St. Nicholas. We pray, Lord, though, that you would give us the ability to, uh, to start conversations that would lead us to conversations about real deep and, and serious things, about faith and trust in Christ. And may we be um, presenting it in a way that is able to be received. Father God, we thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. That that baby in a manger is the King of kings and the Lord of lords coming so humbly, so humbly to imagine the, the King of kings coming and living a perfect, sinless life, to then only have our sins dumped upon him on the cross so that there was the darkness, so that in a sense, you, you, Father, turned your back on the Son. There was a forsaking of some kind. Wow. So that we'd be saved. 
so that like the angel proclaimed, he would save us from our sins. Wow. Thank you, Jesus. May you get all the glory in our lives. We love you and we bless you and we live for you and we declare that you are not just the center of our Christmas, but you are the center of our lives and souls and you are our Lord and you are our King and we look forward even more to your second coming than to your first. And we're, um, we're celebrating this Christmas knowing that you're coming again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord, for your son.